Hi, this is Ron Darling with SNY TV. Um, you know me from covering the Mets, and uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. I had a great time. I hope you do, too. Mets Musings is an unofficial, independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. This is Len and Jeff from Baseball and Barbecue. And the one place to go for New York Mets news, past week game reviews, upcoming series previews, interviews, analysis, opinion, and and what's going going down down on the farm. farm. It's It's Mets Musings with Gary Mack. So keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. I hope everybody had a great week out there. Still no baseball, but we keep pushing. Still trying to talk baseball. No reason why we can't talk it, even though there's none to be had anywhere. And I hope you enjoy this week's show because I'm really excited about this week's guest, everybody. He is a three-time or was a three-time All-Star uh, in National League All-Star. is also the 1972 National League Rookie of the Year and also... If we have a baseball season, I don't know what's going to happen, but he is the one of the 2020 inductees into the New York Mets Hall of Fames. He is John Matlock. John, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Gary. Um, congratulations on being, uh, you know, elected uh, or however they word it into the Mets Hall of Fame. It's a terrific honor and uh, long overdue. Well, it is a terrific honor, and it was somewhat surprising, and it was an, an election, as I understand it. I'm not sure who all votes, but I got a call uh, actually day after my birthday in January um, from Jeff Wilpon and letting me know the news, and it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it, it, it's got to be uh, just terrific to go into a team's, uh, the, the team's Hall of Fame, because that means, to me, it means it you mean a lot to the fans and to the team itself, and, and you accomplished something great there. Well, I, I'm not sure <laughs> about the, the greatness of my accomplishments, but I certainly had a great time playing there. Uh, it was uh, a good place to play, was well-respected and well-treated by the fans, and, and uh, certainly something that I'm going to be very proud of going forward. Now, so uh, you're drafted as a uh, 17-year-old high school player. Um, and um, if I remember correctly, I read somewhere that you were shocked that there were even scouts following you. Well, I, in my junior year is when scouts started showing up. And, and I was so oblivious in a small little <laughs> Pennsylvania town that, that I grew up in that I didn't know what was going on. I all these guys with clipboards and stopwatches behind the backstop when we would be playing and I finally asked our coach one day I said who are, who are these guys with this stuff they're carrying around and he said oh they're scouts and I, I said what's a scout I didn't know what a scout was 
And uh, so he proceeded to tell me that they were representing major league clubs and they were looking for talent and all that kind of stuff. And right. my next question was, well, who are they looking at? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, they're looking at you and they're looking at the catcher and they're looking at the second baseman and the center field. We had four or five pretty pretty quality guys on our club. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the scouts were, were drawn by numerous people, as I understand it. But that that's sort of my introduction to, to pro baseball or how you would get to pro baseball. It was always something I dreamt about growing up, but had no idea how you got from here to there. <laughs> and what, what team were you a fan of growing up as a kid? Uh, I, I grew up outside of Philly about 40 miles. So mm-hmm. I was sort of uh, in tune with what the Phillies were doing. Um, didn't really watch a whole lot of baseball cause I was always busy playing it. Right. But uh, I did try and watch if, if Sandy Koufax was ever pitching on television because he was my guy, and I was able to see a few of his games on TV and uh, always aspired to sort of follow in his footsteps. And I imagine that's why you won number 32 in, in, uh, in honor of uh, Sandy Koufax? You're pretty quick on the update. You sure are. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Well, I go back as far as Koufax does too, so I, I uh, remember certain things like that. <laughs> so you get drafted by the Mets, and uh, you go into the farm system. Your first year wasn't the best. It was a struggle. Well, my first year was just a, a, a blink, because <laughs> due to the regulations or agreement, I guess, they had between Major League Baseball and American Legion Baseball, I got drafted in June, I think it was June 7th, and there was an agreement that until your American Legion season was complete, Major League Baseball would not try and sign a drafted player. Well, we couldn't lose. We played until somewhere in early (laughs) August uh, before I was ever able to negotiate and sign and then was subsequently sent to, to Williamsport, which was double A in the Eastern League, way over my head, but I think they only did it because it was close to home. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I had very rough sledding for a couple of starts trying to figure out how to get double-A hitters out. It was not easy. Well, and that's quite a shock going from uh, American Legion ball into double-A right away. Now now they would never hear doing anything like that. Well, probably not, and and I don't know. It might still happen just for expediency's sake. I was only there. I don't know, probably wasn't more than two and a half, three weeks, um, and then sent immediately to instructional league for the remainder of the fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you come up in 71, uh, you struggled then, but really 72 was when you came up for the full season, well, 15 and 10 with a 2.32 ERA, and uh, win the uh, uh, National League Rookie of the Year. That must have been quite a thrill. Uh, it, it was, um, no doubt. And, and again, it, this was something that I didn't even know was in existence. Um, so somewhere in the, the August time frame, I would have a writer or two ask me about the rookie of the year award and not to sound dumb. I just sort of tried to play it off. Like <laughs> I didn't really know much about it, but yeah. you know, whatever was going to be was going to be. And I had to do some quick research cause I didn't know what it was all about. Um, but I was fortunate enough to, to win that, and uh, it was a very nice um, honor, obviously, and uh, certain, I'm, certainly I'm proud of that. We come into 73, and, of course, that was the year 
that uh, it seemed nobody wanted to win the NL East. Well, take us through that year a little bit. And did you guys think you could win it that year? And, uh, you know, uh, how did you hold it all together? Well, I, I don't know that we held anything together until the tail end. Um, it, it was a very strange year, to say the least. And I think, uh, I may be wrong, but I think every team in the division was in first place at some time or another during the season. Wow. Um, and we managed to take it to our turn when it, it counted most, right at mm-hmm. the end. Um, how it all happened, I can't begin to tell you. I just know that uh, somewhere... Mid to late August, uh, we started to play more like a ball club, and everybody contributed whatever was needed. Whoever happened to be in that role at the time seemed to step up and get it done. And um, we came from a long ways back to end up winning it by just a little bit, and uh, I guess that's all that matters. That's all that counts, yeah. And and uh, really, I mean, that was a pretty good ball club. I mean, I don't think people give it credit when you, when you look through that that ball club, how good it really was. In looking back, I got to agree with you. There was a lot of quality players there. Um, I think there were some uh, health factors, injury factors that, that played into the overall season. Had everybody been healthy all season long and through the playoffs and series, uh, things may have been a little bit different, but uh, that didn't happen. And, and things ended the way they did. Yeah. Um, you get to the playoffs, and what kind of a thrill was that as a second-year guy and, and uh, you're in the playoffs and then you, you beat the mighty Cincinnati Reds, you go into the World Series and you play in the Oakland A's. Take us through that a little bit, how the feeling was. And you started game one, by the way. Yeah, it was a little bit daunting, to say the least, um, to be headed into that kind of territory, especially as a, as a 23-year-old and a second-year player. Um, but I just went about it like I did most of my other games is one step at a time, one pitch at a time, one out at a time, tried to do the best I could every time I walked out there. And, um, hopefully that was going to be good enough. And in some instances it was, (laughs) and the the last one, it wasn't. Well, Um, yeah, game seven was a tough call. Now, did you pitch that on short rest or you you pitched on three days rest? I think was that short in those days or it it was, um, we had done it occasionally if I don't know, a double header, you run into something weird during the season. There might've been one or two other times when, we came back on, on early rest, um, but when it came to the series, it was uh, three days throughout. For, for I pitched one, four, and seven, and the way the schedule was, that was that fell on the fourth day, not the fifth day. Uh, and, and you can make of that what you will. I don't know that it entered into it all that much. Uh, I didn't feel fatigued. Um, when it comes right down to it, I just... I had Campaneros hit a good pitch that ended up being mm-hmm. a home run. The wind helped it a little bit, but he still had to hit it. Right. Uh, and then I, I hung a curveball to uh, to Reggie that uh, you or most other people would probably hit out. So, <laughs> Well, I don't know. <laughs> he, but... <laughs> did, he, he did what he was supposed to do with that one, and that was just a, a mistake on my part. <laughs> well, you know, Reggie's hit a few in his lifetime. <laughs> just a couple. Just, just a couple. <laughs> 
Now, um, we talked about some of the guys on that team that you played with. Um, any of them stand out to you as uh, that were inspirational to you or that uh, were, uh, you know, that you became especially close with? I mean, when you think about it, you, you, you know, you had Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman on that staff and you, uh, Felix Mion, terrific second baseman. And, um, of course, you had an iconic hero on there, though, granted, he was at the end of his career. Um, Willie Mays, can you speak about any of those guys at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, Willie was an icon, and <clears throat> even though the, the physical talent may have diminished somewhat at that point in his career, uh, his instincts and mental approach to the game were top-notch and was certainly somebody that you could – um, just watch and learn from by the way he went about his business and uh, I mean he had a, a knack for watching the trajectory of a pitch as it went to the plate and if it looked like it was going to short hop the catcher he was already a step and a half to second base wow. uh, even though he wasn't fast he had the instincts to know when the catcher was going to have a difficult time handling a ball and made it more times than not just based on that um, just a great guy to have around and, and certainly watched out for me as a younger guy uh, in terms of, uh, you know, if I was pitching the next day, he, he was one of the first ones as we were leaving the clubhouse to uh, mentor me on being sure to get enough mm -hmm. rest and all that good stuff. Right, right. Uh, no no uh, prima donna in him at all, being that he was such a huge star? Not that I saw. No. I mean, he... Mm -hmm. As a player and with teammates, he was just one of the guys. Great to have around. Yeah. Um, Ed Cranepool is another guy that, that, that you played with who's been around as long as dirt, I think, <laughs> as far as the Mets are concerned. <laughs> no, no, Crane was actually a, a roomie for a couple of years, and, and we got to be uh, very close. Haven't Unfortunately, haven't talked to him in a, in a little while now, but uh, <clears throat> it was certainly good to have around and knew his way around the city and, and helped me a bunch with acclimating to being in the metropolitan area, uh, which was good. Um, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, they put my locker right in between the two of them, so I couldn't have been oh in a better goodness. spot there um, in terms of getting any information that might have been needed from game to game as, as far as uh, psychology, uh, Eating and physical training habits came from Seaver and, and that type of stuff. And, and Kuzman and I talked at length about how to pitch to various guys in different teams and because we had similar stuff. and We would share tidbits back and forth, and he was a tremendous help as well. Was that intimidating at all, being in a locker room between those two guys? Well, it started out being a little bit that way, but uh, – it didn't last that long. I mean, I, I pitched well enough early enough that uh, I don't know if they counted me as an equal, but they looked at me as somebody who could certainly help the ball club, and therefore they were going to help me, and that was a benefit. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, now it's a shame the uh, battle that Tom Seaver's having with his health issues, um, the Alzheimer's and, and all of that sort of thing, and, and uh, just a shame that it's came to that. No question. I couldn't say it better. And by the way, uh, Ed, Ed Cranepool is doing quite well. Um, he, he 
you know, he had his operation and uh, he is doing pretty terrific. He's all over the place again. He was down in Florida, I heard. and uh, So that, that's good to see. Well, it's nice. You can't keep Crane down. <laughs> He's a very nice guy. Um, I've been trying to get him on the show. I've talked to him a number of times, but I've never gotten him on the show. So, um, But I keep working on it. One of these days, I'll get him. <laughs> One of these days, you'll get it done, I'm sure. <laughs> and, of course, then, then the Mets struggled the next few years that you were there. And um, you were there in uh, 77 for the Midnight Massacre, you're still with the team. And uh, what was that that time, you know, that uh, that specific time, that June, when uh, this was all going down? Did the players have any idea that, that Tom was going to get traded? Or did it come as a complete shock to everybody? You knew he wasn't happy. He wanted an extension. And, of course, there was the whole thing with M. Donald Grant and Dick Young. Uh can you take us through that a little bit from your point of view? Well, you knew a little bit about what was going on. Tom wasn't too open about it uh, at the time. I think more of it came out in the press after the fact. But uh, we were aware of some of the tension between he and, and Donald Grant and especially between he and Dick Young. Uh, but I at least was not aware of the closeness between M. Donald Grant and Dick Young. So mm-hmm. it, how much influence... Uh, Dick Young may have had in all of this, I'm not really sure, but probably more than I thought at the time. Um, And, you know, you wondered what was going to come out of it, but I was certainly shocked when the trade took place. Um, You know, even more shocked as they continued to clean house and got rid of all three of us in the span of a year. Right, right. Yeah, and and Kingman was gone, and... and, uh... In the span of the year, and you, as you said, you went to to uh, Texas in a trade in '78. Um, what was, was de- December? It was December '77 seven, when I left, okay. and 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 Kuzi was in in June, I think, of or sometime during '78. So, virtually within a, a year's period of time, all three of us were somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And what was it like going to uh, Texas after being in New York and? Uh, uh, you know, drafted by them and everything, getting traded. What was you were traded in the off season? So did that make it a little easier on you? I think maybe, but it was still a complete and total shock, uh, culture shock, change, uh, realization that this is a business more so than a sport. Um, you know, and I guess he always thought about it that way. But until you were summarily shipped off to some other ball club. Uh, for some other goods, <laughs> you didn't yeah. really have the the true meaning of of what that business was like, um, and it I don't know. I guess it was the kiss of death. I was told um, <clears throat> superstitiously that uh, getting a house and fixing it up was not the thing you should do. And literally, it was a three year program that we had been on fixing up this older house that we bought. Uh, and the day we finished the last project, I was in the basement cleaning paintbrushes where we had finished painting the screened-in porch um, when I got the call that I had been traded. So <laughs> the superstition <laughs> came true. <laughs> and um, um, you stayed with uh, Texas until 83. Um, 
did you enjoy your time there? Was it? I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a winning team. I don't believe at that time. Um, and and what did you find different in the American League from the National League? Well, the leagues were definitely different. You know, you had the designated hitter, and um, uh, at that time, a completely different strike zone because the umpires were wearing the outside chest protectors down there, and the strike zone was higher. Uh, I had to make uh, quite a few adjustments as, as far as that was concerned, and, and you also had the um, not the easy spot in the lineup. Not that every hitter was easy in the National. I'm sorry, every pitcher was easy in the National League, but. Uh, in the American League, you weren't facing any of them, so there was always another bat in there that you had to contend with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was different. Uh, being in Texas as opposed to New York, um, for at least half of our games, uh, the heat became a factor in, right. in trying to figure out how to deal with the Texas heat over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there were there were some differences for sure. <laughs> And um, I, the heat is is usually the big thing down there, right? A lot of people have to get used to it. Now they built the new stadium uh, and was supposed to open this year, and uh, um, that's got a, a roof on it. But that's that's the big thing that they talk about a lot when they go when people go to Texas. Well, it, it became a an issue, I think, probably more so for the everyday players um than for starting pitchers but i think it was an issue for me as well i ended up uh, I, I played all my years in new york at about 195 pounds maybe bumped it to 200 at, at times um and that's where i felt comfortable in, in that climate and environment and in texas i ended up putting on probably eight or ten more pounds uh to literally have something else as a background to, right. to, to, to sweat out and still have some uh, stamina left. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if it happened all the time, but I remember one game I ended up pitching down there. It was over 100 when we started the game. It was a day game. And I ended up pitching all nine innings. The game still was not complete. <laughs> we ended up going extra innings. Uh, but I lost 11 pounds from start to wow. finish in that ball game. Wow, that's something. And that you know, nowadays you don't see that even the the complete games. The whole the game has changed so much nowadays. Oh, no question. The, the roles are totally different. The starting pitchers were uh, expected to go minimum of seven back in my day, and then I, everybody was mad if they came to get you before the game was over. Right. So it was your job to go out there and stay out there. Uh, today, the starters seem to have a role of you know, two times through the lineup or somewhere around five, maybe six innings, um, the better ones will roll a little farther than mm-hmm. that. But then they go to the specialty guys in the bullpen and, and try and lock it down if they've got a lead. And that's just the way the game has evolved. Right. Um, you uh, retired in, in 83, and uh, uh, four years later you came back to the game in 87, I guess it was, with the uh, San Diego Padres as a coach. Was that something that you wanted to get involved with in coaching, or did it just happen to fall into your lap? Well, it, it was not something that I initially looked at, but the more I was away from the game and would watch it on television with my son who was growing up at that point, um, noticed that there were things I'm seeing in big league games that, I didn't think should have been part of those games and should have been taught guys before they got to the big leagues. And I finally decided that, you know what, I've got something to offer to these guys 
that are coming up in the system and talked to my wife and said, look, we're not going to get rich doing this, but I want to go back and coach. And she was on board with that. And it was actually 88 that I started back with the, uh, with the Padres and, and coached from there right straight through to through 2012 in varying roles with different organizations. Um, is that something that you'd like to get back into again, or are you uh, happy with what you're doing now? What I'm doing now is talking to guys on the phone once in a while about <laughs> what I used to do, <laughs> and that suits me just fine. Not, not that I wouldn't mind a, a coaching role somewhere, but I don't think in today's environment uh, I would be afforded the opportunity to do a job as much as I would be told how to do it, and I don't think I can work under that basis. It seems that's the way that it's going nowadays. Um, you know, I had uh, had a little acquaintance with the former uh, Brooklyn Cyclones coach and uh, pitching coach, and uh, I, he used to say they get they get word from the front office that uh, this guy's going three innings and. You know, and it, and it kind of disappoint. I kind of understand it, but I also, you know, kind of disappoints the fan from a fan point of view because you'd want to see a, a high draft pick pitch a little bit more. Well, you would hope that guys that are capable of a, developing into somebody who who could potentially uh, allow the other members on the pitching staff a rest once in a while that you would allow those guys to develop that way. Yeah. Uh, everybody is sort of developed in a, in a pigeonhole kind of category where that 100-pitch mark is some kind of golden rule that you don't go beyond, or if you do, it's only a couple of pitches beyond. And most everybody stick into that. Uh, and there's now a new one that shows that if uh, a starting pitcher has seen the lineup twice, he can't figure out how to get him out the third time, so we can't let him go out there. Uh, no matter what's going on, he might not have enough pitches to have his day complete, but he's going to go through them the third time, and heaven knows bad things are going to happen if that happens. So right. <laughs> that And that comes in large part from not allowing them to develop as pitchers by telling them what to do. You don't let them have any responsibility for the mistakes that they make mm -hmm. or any benefit from the right decisions that they make. So they haven't learned uh, how to deal with adversity and circumstance. They've simply learned how to follow a game plan that's been given to them. Um, and I, I think that if you take that away, give them the information, let them pitch the way they feel is appropriate that given day, how the ball feels in their hand, etc. cetera, um, you're going to find guys developing more. The human factor is back into the game. Right. And there's going to be a lot of pitchers that are very capable of getting guys out the third and fourth time through the lineup um, because they've figured out how to play chess at 90 miles an hour instead of simply following a game plan that everybody knows exists. And when did this transition into this? I mean, do you think it was the, the – um the large money coming in that that brought about a lot of this or was it more the more of the collegiate player and we can't push them as much because they just played a season i mean where, where do you think this all came in because it just seems it's probably been over a number of years but to a lot of fans it just seems so sudden 
You know what I'm saying? Um, when do you feel this came into play? Well, when, when Billy Bean started with the uh, statistical analysis of, mm-hmm. of how to put together a ball club, that's probably where it started in earnest. I think there's probably little bits of it here and there previous, but now everybody was in a race to figure out whose computer was better and which algorithm was better. And, um, we're going to find out that, uh, you know, we get enough statistical data, we're going to find out that at, at 210 on a Tuesday afternoon <laughs> with partially cloudy skies, if you throw a slider to Miguel Cabrera, he's going to hit a ground ball to second base 80% of the time. So that's how the game is played nowadays. So you've taken the thought process away from the pitcher rather than giving him data about tendencies and um, what guys are apt to do in, in given situations and allowing them to implement that information. You're telling them in, in large part, this is how we're going to go about it. And that takes all the benefit and responsibility o- away from them and puts it on the guy who's told them how to do it. Right. And they simply look they simply look at, at the stats and say, here, the stats said this should have worked. If it didn't work, it's not my fault. Yeah. So nobody takes nobody takes the blame anywhere. Nobody takes it. And I mean you don't even see pitchers charting games anymore. I mean that that's like a past thing because they get all of this information. I guess they figure they don't need that. Well they that's very true. There's there's so much more information that it's probably overwhelming in, in a lot of respects. Um, I still think it's beneficial for the next day pitcher to be uh, involved in charting somehow. It doesn't have to be the meticulous stuff that they do nowadays with spin rate and velocity and all that good stuff. But if you simply go with sequencing and location and, and keep some kind of a record, you're paying close enough attention. You see exactly what's going on with that given lineup uh, it may not be against the same stuff that you're going to feature but you see what guys are doing in real time right now that you might be able to utilize to your benefit mm-hmm. the next day when you go out there and by not having that information and simply following a game plan i just it, it's more physical against physical and and whether you can outstuff somebody rather than uh, figuring a way through sequencing and location to get what I call friendly contact, uh-huh. let your defense let your defense do some work, and hopefully get outs on on you know six pitches, eight pitches during the course of an inning, as opposed to having to try and outstuff them and throw twenty. Right. Now you played in an era where you played with a uh, a ton of uh, Hall of Famers. Um, who was the toughest one for you to face? Well, see, everybody wants to ask me that question. And <laughs> as soon as I name, as soon as I name one name, I've made fifty other guys angry. <laughs> so I can't say that I can really do that. What I did going into any given game was try and pick however many guys there might have been in that lineup. Two, three could have been as many as five. Mm-hmm. That if the game, if the game's on the line. I'm not going to let this guy beat me. I'm going to be, it's not overly cautious, but I'm going to be on my best to try and make him hit my pitch rather than play challenge baseball in that situation because he's liable to be equal to the challenge. So that was uh, probably the way I I tried to approach that. And 
it paid off in a lot of instances. Uh, a lot of good hitters got their hits off of me, and a lot of times they were in non-count situations. Uh, you know, the double that didn't drive in any runs. That he can have that all day long. That's okay. Um, now back to your question. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to name one guy that okay. you may or may not have heard of. That was a backup catcher in Montreal that beat me to death one year. I think he was seven for 11 or something like that. And I couldn't get him out. I tried to knock him down. I threw him everything but the kitchen sink. His name was John Bacabella. Bacabella. Sure. <laughs> well, that's funny how that works out. Uh, you know, that, that it's a backup catcher that gives you a hard time. But um, what was it like to face uh, uh, Pete Rose or uh, or Johnny Bench, some, somebody like that? I mean, Pete Rose was had to be a pain in the neck to get out. Pete was a tough out. There, there's no question. He uh, usually got a piece of the ball. You rarely were going to strike him out. Um, so the... the the test really was to try and keep him in a situation where his aggressive approach and swings would lead to contact that would be at somebody. So if you could figure a way to <clears throat> make a pitch in sequence with another one that based on previous swing would indicate that, you know, you may get this ball hit to the shortstop mm -hmm. or if I take a little bit off it, he may get under it and, and loft a fly ball to the outfield. Those types of things where you're looking for a softer hit ball, not that Pete had everything soft, but you know, not something that he's going to be able to square up and hit a line drive somewhere. And and that's the best way to approach him for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly certainly not a guy that you wanted to walk and put on base because he was going to be a, a nightmare on the bases. Um, and, and Bench was a guy that I tried to keep him from extending his arms. Um, I tried to be as, as inside as often and as hard as possible um, so that uh, he couldn't get the, hopefully couldn't get the fat part of the bat to the ball where it could stay fair. And that worked fairly well. And now what was it like throwing at Jerry Cody, uh, Grody? Oh, Groats was great. Uh, he, he could be a royal pain in the neck because um, <laughs> he was a, really a staunch competitor. Uh, and a lot of times would take that out on you if you weren't doing the best that you could do. Um, but I, I love the way he called the game. I love the way he caught the game. And um, was certainly a, a great guy to have on your side when you're out there trying to beat somebody. Now, Ed Cranepool has a picture of him and Roberto Clemente, uh, and he's handing him a baseball. And he said it was the final hit of uh, Clemente's career. And uh, I believe that you were the pitcher of that game. I was the pitcher. No question about that. I had, when I got into the coaching ranks, that gave me instant recognition with the Latin ball players. <laughs> they, they, would hear, they would hear my name and say, oh, you the guy. Clemente <laughs> so it was sort of funny, but. No, I, I was, again, a, an oblivious rookie late in, the, in my rookie season trying to win a ball game, having a tough day. We were getting beat. Um, I tried to make a pitch with a curveball that when it left my hand, I knew was going to be a ball, and I was sort of upset with myself because it wasn't even going to be a strike. I didn't think he was even going to offer at it. And uh, he took his usual big stride and kept his hands back. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes the bat. 
he managed to reach out there and hook this thing into left center field for a double. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, damn, that's a pretty good piece of hitting. And the place goes crazy. There were only, I don't know, 13, 14,000 people there, but everybody's cheering and they're handing him the ball. And I can't understand what this is all about until I see the 3,000 flashing on the scoreboard uh-huh. and then my light bulb went on. <laughs> Well, it's always nice to have one claim to fame, even if it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody had to do it. And look, you've got a World Series win. Nobody, you know, not too many people could say that. Well, I, I'll trade one for the other. That's okay. And yeah. if I got to be tied to a, tied to a guy for that reason, I couldn't be tied to a, a classier, better ball player than that one. Do you think we're going to have a baseball season this year? Oh my golly! I, I honestly do not know. This is uh, some really unreal and scary times. Uh, I'm certainly glad that they have called things off when they did, and and hopefully we can get this bug taken care of and put behind us, and and everything can go back to normal as as soon as possible. But hopefully that won't be too soon because this does seem like it's a a nasty bug, and don't wish it on anybody. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, John, I want to thank you so much. This has been a real joy and a real pleasure, and uh, I I just enjoyed it so much. (laughs) I just uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Not a problem. I enjoyed it, too. It's always good to talk shop. All right, and I'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C70. My name is Daniel Shopdaw, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the Internet today about their teams. It always comes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website, www.cardinal70.com, or at baseballpodcast.net. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts. With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. Okay, and we're back. Just as I was wrapping up this week's show, the news came across the wire about Noah Syndergaard requiring Tommy John surgery. Um, This, of course, is a great shock, and I'm going to add this little bit and edit it into the show. Um, It's a great shock to the rotation, not only for 2020, if we get to play, but also 2021. Uh, Don't forget, in 2021, at at the end of this season, 2020, Stroman... Pacella and Walker's contracts are all up. So that would be three pieces they have to fill in the rotation with Syndergaard being out till at a minimum, he won't be back till probably July or August of 2021. They need to start the season with pitchers. The only ones they'll have in their rotation at that time will be Mats and DeGrom. Now, of course, they're going to count on Peterson to uh, progress and Zabuki to progress and and hopefully Wolf and Allen may be ready by that time, but you can't take that gamble. Uh, we have to see what happens. But 
my guess is they're going to have to sign one or two of these guys, whether it be Waka and uh, Porcello or Waka and Stroman or Porcello and Stroman, however it works out, whoever has a better year if we get to play. If they don't get to play, it's going to be a, a very confusing situation. Um, how do you sign somebody and they, they, they're on your team for a year and they don't even play a game? I don't know how that's going to work out. I would think that all contracts would have to be uh, suspended, but, you know, I doubt that the union would go for that. But uh, big blow to the Mets this year and next year as far as uh, losing Noah Syndergaard to Tommy John surgery. And, you know, who knows whether it could have been avoided, but uh, throwing at max effort for every pitch and trying to uh, throw 105 miles an hour and putting muscle on, terrible, terrible idea. Doesn't help. And, uh, you know, compared to a golf swing, Tiger Woods never swung at 100%. You just couldn't you couldn't see the ball swinging that fast. You, you couldn't be accurate with the ball, be all over the place. And I know a lot of these guys are all over the place anyway, but... The point is, even the great golfers swing at, you know, 80 to 90 percent. And uh, Tom Seaver never threw at 100 percent all the time. You save it up for when you need it in a game. And that's why these guys used to pitch six, seven innings a game. This stuff with the max effort on every pitch is a little ridiculous. And you watch a guy like DeGrom. He's not max effort every pitch he's smooth he's easy and uh he uses his athleticism to get the job done instead of trying to uh power everything so um could it been you know could it have been avoided who knows i doubt it i i doubt, i think your arms got so many and when you throw that hard, eventually it's going to go. It happens to everybody. But um, goodbye, Noah, for a, a year and a half or so. They say the time is about 12 to 15 months. Uh, you know, we'll miss two seasons and Matt's missed two seasons. So I would expect to see Syndergaard somewhere at the end of 2021, as I said, July or August, or if not at all, you won't see until 2022, which brings up another situation, which we'll discuss in the future. He becomes a free agent then. So, all right. Um, now I'll connect you back to the show. And um, that's really going to wrap it up for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I want to thank my guest, John Matlack, once again. And uh, please, all of you out there, stay inside and listen to podcasts, listen to Mets Musings, listen to Talking Golf with Gary, listen to uh, the Baseball Talk radio show, which I do with my good friend Rich Baxter, and listen to Baseball and Barbecue with my good buddies Jeff and Len that do a terrific job. They've got a new episode out. It's terrific. You'll enjoy it. So go listen to them as well. Um 
I want to thank you all for listening to uh, the podcast. And don't f- forget to subscribe on Apple Play, Google Play, uh, YouTube if you watch the video version, CastBox, wherever you may listen to the podcast. Hit the subscribe button. That helps me grow the show and expand to new listeners. And until next time, keep your fingers crossed, wash your hands, stay inside, keep your social distance, but also remember to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. And I'll see you next time on another edition of Mets Music.